Thank you, Randy. Uh, good morning, Church at the Red Door. Have we got a morning for you? We've got a morning for you. I, I have been uh, thinking about this all week. It was actually a complete reversal midweek. I got hold of some material uh, from a close friend of mine that I'll talk about here in a little bit. And I said, I have to share this, especially in light of we're coming up on an election. And I've had people all week talk to me about, you know what, Jeff? Uh, who are you going to have? I had somebody text me late last night and go, are you going to interview Biden? No, I'm not interviewing, interviewing Biden or Trump. Uh, some of you will remember years ago when I brought in a George Bush lookalike. None of that's going on anymore. Uh, this is going to be some uh, quite profound and I think serious substance. Again, look, people accuse me all the time. There's just no way. Uh, Jeff, you're too political, uh, but more often it's you're not political enough. Why don't you say... Uh, speak to cultural issues more, always trying to speak to the cultural issues, and, and I'll even speak to political issues if there is an underlying biblical and theological foundation that needs to be addressed, and we're going to talk about that a little bit this morning. Why don't you, again, let me open in prayer. I think this is going to be, again, a fantastic morning. Some of you are going to have to listen and then go back and re-listen again. Uh, I know Randy did that earlier in the week as I gave him some of this material, and so uh, I'm excited to get going here. Are you ready? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for Church at the Red Door. Though we continue not to be able to meet, uh, based on all the restrictions and the pandemic around us, Lord, we are able to meet uh, online, and we're grateful for our teams. We're grateful for all, all the folks that work so diligently to bring this to our family and keep us together as a unit. Lord, I pray for those that are beginning to make their way back to the desert and uh, we get them for the duration of the season now and I pray that you'd give them safety in their travels. But most of all, Lord, this morning, and this is ripe for miscommunication, for misunderstanding, for misperception. Anytime you tackle an issue like this, it's so much a part uh, of our foundations uh, Lord, uh, it's challenging. So Lord, I'm asking you to intervene this morning. We want you to be lifted up. We want you to be glorified. We care about our country. We care about the world. Of course we do, but we also care about America. It's where you've placed us. We're in the 21st century at a particular time, at a particular place because of your sovereignty. And we do care about our nation. And Lord, so we, we pray that you would invade this space today and be present and give us wisdom and discernment as we tackle some of these profound issues. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Look, I don't think anybody has to really uh, guess whether or not our country is undergoing some seismic turmoil. We've seen a confluence of things over the last few months that uh, I just don't think anybody could have imagined could come together and coalesce together. And so when we look around and we see not only a, this global COVID issue and this pandemic that's kind of raging, and I know even that's been politicized, but it certainly exists. People are dying. And then we merge that with some of the racial strife and tension and division. There's division even in the church, whether you should meet or not meet and all. I mean, it's just everywhere we look, there seems to be division and chaos seems to be kind of ruling right now. And then obviously just in a couple of days, there will be a vote and some, some think that if they can just get the right political party or the right person 
end that everything will change. And yet there's a fundamental flaw to that reasoning, and that is human depravity, human sin. So we're going to talk about that a little bit this morning. I'm going to introduce my guests in a minute. But before I do, I want to talk just a little bit and remind you that, look, our battle is not against flesh and blood. Paul could not have been more clear. Our battle's not against people. It's not against other ethnic groups. It's not against uh, socioeconomic class. It's not male against female. Uh, it's not Jew against Gentile. Look, it, our battle is against spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. So when we're beginning to talk about and think about what do spiritual forces do? How do they invade the earth? Do they come down and uh, torment people in, in their dreams? Do they uh, have people killed? We always think of the, the guy walking through with the sickle, the black death, and we think of things like that. But I will tell you how spiritual forces battle. Spiritual forces battle in the area of philosophy and speculations raised up against the knowledge of God. That's how they battle. Our task is the church. Paul could not have been more clear. 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 15, the church, and that's you and me, we are the pillars and support of the truth. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are the pillar and support of the truth. If you go back into the Greek, it really means to prop it up, to make it be seen, to support it. We are the supporters of the truth. And then Jesus comes along and says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Jesus didn't ever claim to point to the truth. He claimed to to be the truth. And so when we're supporting and we're, we're lifting up and we're being a pillar for the truth, we are in fact proponents of Jesus and everything he said about reality. If you have your Bibles, grab them and let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We actually talk about this often. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. While I turn here in my Bible. And uh, I want to look here now at verse 3, 2 Corinthians 10, 3. For, for though we walk in the flesh, we're not warring according to the flesh. We're not after people. And there's a reason for that. And that's going to be what's going to be brought out this morning as we think about our country and the answers and the solutions. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. This is not bombs and or spears or uh, or, or anything. It's the weapons of our warfare. No. What are they? They're what? Divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. What kinds of fortresses? Well, obviously, he's using metaphor here. It's not physical fortresses. It's philosophies. Listen to what he goes on to say. We are destroying what? What kind of fortresses? Speculations. Okay? Speculations. And every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God... And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. What are we called, if we're going to be the pillars in support of the truth, if Church at the Red Door is going to reach out and, and serve its role in, in this valley, in, our, in any place that we're called, to be a pillar in support of Jesus, what is our task? Well, part of it is destroying any speculation that raises itself up against the knowledge of God. Well, who is the knowledge of God? Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is the knowledge of God. He is our wisdom and our knowledge, Paul said to the Colossians. Jesus is our 
knowledge. So when Jesus makes a claim and he talks about the condition of man, he's making a claim as truth, not just interesting insight, but truth. And Jesus as the truth is our knowledge. So if we're going to defend, if we're going to go into the public square and be able to articulate, now let me tell you something else. This is why I'm so excited about our guests this morning. If you're going to be able, many, we just know this is the valley, this is the Palm Springs area, we have some young people in our church, but the predominant demographic that makes up, at least now, Church at the Red Door, many of you have children already, or you even have grandchildren. Some of you have great-grandchildren, I know for a fact. And you feel in some ways incapable of having a conversation with the concern that you have because in some ways you really don't know how to articulate the concerns that you have as it relates to our country right now and some of the turmoil that's going on in our country. I'm hoping that our guest is going to do that. So who is our guest? Well, first of all, I love this guy. I mean, I've known him. He's going to tell you a little bit about it. I've known John O since he was virtually born. Uh, when I was attending Rice University, uh, as he will tell you. Uh, Jonathan's father is one of my closest friends and has been for over 35 years. If it, In fact, if it wouldn't have been for John O, Jonathan's mother and father, uh, Laura and I would have never met. It was uh, Dennis, his father, who actually uh, was able to introduce Laura and myself You know, almost 30 years ago. It's crazy. Uh, right out of school, it's interesting, I go back and I think about Jonathan growing up, and of course I was able to kind of keep abreast of everything that was going on with Jonathan. Right out of school, Jonathan turns to his mom and dad and said, look, I'm going to New York and I'm going to become a model. Now, I remember Dennis's comment to me at that time, he's like, what, what, are you crazy? I mean, and yet he wanted to support his son, and he did, and they supported his son, and Jonathan moved to New York, and in very short order, Jonathan had kind of invaded that space and had actually... Uh, actually began to carve out a pretty significant career for himself. He says, in the fashion industry and in the arts, which is true, he kind of is hesitant to use that model uh, moniker because, uh, you know, you kind of think of, well, a model is uh, maybe not so intellectually deep, or I don't know what the perception of the stereotype is. I understand that. But Jonathan was actually quite successful, and I think we'll pull up a few pictures here. Uh, Jonathan became an Armani uh, billboard model, and I mean, he really made his way, and then uh, was attending actually in New York, attending Tim Keller's church. Some of you, I know the Andersons were part of that launch with Tim Keller and his wife in New York, had a profound impact. I'm quoting Tim Keller all the time. I look up here, I see Tim Keller, the reason for God, and I've got pretty much all of Tim's books. Well, he was attending their church, involved in a parachurch ministry, reaching out in that industry, and then Jonathan got profoundly sick, and he'll tell you a little bit more of that story. Profoundly sick. And for the last almost 14 years has had a life and death struggle with a disease that they could not figure out. Recently, we've gotten some great news. Jonathan's put on a lot of weight. It's really great. His wife now, who I'm, whom I've never had the privilege to meet, Jillian, I know they're watching this morning, and uh, I'm excited about that. Let me tell you this last little thing, and then I'm going to turn this back over to Jonathan but I will tell you this, that Jonathan, uh, even, in his, uh, even in the physical state that he was, had amazing seven years as one of the global master trainers for the Center of Leadership Studies, which really gets into situational leadership. Now, this is a select few, but was one of the seven global master teachers, which is amazing. 
And uh, I think that's phenomenal. And you're going to see that come through. Uh, he's training philosophically. He's uh, got his got some degrees from Southeastern Seminary. And uh, he, I believe, I personally believe, this is just me and this is, I, I mean, I believe that Jonathan is going to be have a profound voice going forward into many of your children's, grandchildren's generation. I think Jonathan's going to be a voice. I'm just saying, I, I, I believe in the call that's on Jonathan's life. And so anyway, with that as a setup, I now turn you over to one who is really our family, really our family, part of our family. And I, when I don't mean just the Cranford family, I mean Church at the Red Door family. And I have aspirations to bring, as when Jonathan gets better, to bring him out to Church at the Red Door, actually have him share, and maybe we can do an outreach or something. I don't know what the future holds, but here is Church at the Red Door, my dear friend, Jonathan Darville. Good morning, Church at the Red Door. As Jeff mentioned, my name is Jonathan Darville. Uh, Jeff and I have actually known each other since I was a little boy. And every time we see each other, Jeff likes to remind me that apparently my first word was golf. He and my dad have been close friends for a long time, dating back to when uh, Jeff was playing golf at Rice University and my dad was a pastor in Houston. And my dad is actually now working with Jeff as the Southeast Regional Director for Lynx Players International, which I imagine most of you are familiar with. Uh, so we have deep ties to your pastor and a great love and admiration for your congregation. I also want to thank all of you who've been praying for me over the last couple of years. For those that don't know, I've had some serious health issues and almost lost my life earlier this year to starvation. I spent 10 days in the hospital back in February, but by the grace of God, after over a decade of searching for answers, we finally received an accurate diagnosis and proper treatment. It's been about eight weeks since I really turned a corner, but I'm beginning to live a functional life again, and I'm just so grateful for all of your prayers. God has evidently answered them, so thank you. I also want to thank you for allowing me to speak to you this morning. I'm honored to be with you, even if virtually. Uh, we're going to share a video with you that I recorded entitled, My Fellow Millennials, We've Been Duped, Cultural Marxism versus Christianity in the Public Square. If you're curious about what my credentials are for speaking on the topic, they would be that I am a millennial, a trained philosopher, and a professing Christian. The talk is for all generations, but is specifically targeted at millennials because of my level of concern for my and younger generations. A few years ago, I started to notice the cultural climate shifting at what appeared to be a more rapid pace. The level of civil discourse, especially among my generation, was deteriorating. The level of moral relativism was increasing. And professing Christian friends of my wife and I were abandoning historical Christian teaching on everything from marriage to gender and the unborn. I was really having trouble making sense of what was happening and why. I didn't understand where all the tribalism was coming from and why we couldn't agree on issues of identity and justice anymore. Then I read a little book entitled That Hideous Strength, How the West Was Lost by Melvin Tinker, which I would commend to you. And suddenly everything I was observing made sense. The problem had a name, a name that was actually given to it by its historical proponents, and that name was cultural Marxism or critical theory. So after a few years of studying what cultural Marxism is, where it came from, and its influence on our culture, I decided it was time to, 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 it was time to produce something to help my generation understand and escape cultural Marxism's influence on their view of the world. So that's why I made the video, which we will now play for you and where I promise you will get a definition of cultural Marxism. There's a lot of division in the world right now. 
So much so that it's hard to make sense of what is going on or even have a civil conversation about it. We appear to be losing any shared understanding of reality, which is scary. We can't build a common wealth if we have nothing in common. A house divided against itself cannot stand, as Abraham Lincoln said. We're in trouble. We've never been more divided as a country. We can't even agree on the definitions of life, liberty, and justice anymore. Nor can we agree to disagree on matters of opinion. We've lost the virtue both of objectivity as well as the virtue of tolerance. But maybe that shouldn't surprise us. We've been told for over 50 years in this country that everyone determines what is true for themselves. So no wonder we can't agree on anything. How on earth could we agree on how to best organize a nation if what is right and wrong for me might not necessarily be what is right and wrong for my neighbor? This is why Martin Luther King Jr. emphasized so strongly the importance of a higher divine law that universally applied to everyone. He knew that a divine law was necessary to determine whether a particular human law was just or not. He also knew that a universal divine law was needed to establish the boundaries within which freedom could flourish. That said, I made the following video to hopefully provide some clarity on what is going on in our culture right now and how we as a generation might be able to contribute to unifying our fractured society. But before we jump in, let me say up front, some of this might bother you regardless of what political party you align with because this is not a party line response to what's going on in our society. It's a philosophical and pastoral response emerging from my Christian faith. And my prayer is that this will help contribute to getting some of us on the same page, as idealistic as that might sound. All right, my fellow millennials, we've been duped. We've been lied to about who we and other people are. We've been lied to about what's wrong with the world. And we've been lied to about what the solution to the world's problems is. You see, the default philosophy in our society right now is known as cultural Marxism. If you haven't heard of that, essentially cultural Marxism, as E.P. Thompson tells us, extends Marxist ideology about exploitation beyond just economic forces to include cultural and religious factors as well. And cultural Marxism teaches us to fundamentally define people according to their non-primary group identities. For example, we're encouraged to fundamentally define people by their gender, their generation, their sexual orientation, their race, their socioeconomic class, etc. And each group, we are told, falls into one of two categories, oppressed groups and oppressor groups. In other words, we've been conditioned primarily through the media and educational institutions to believe that one's essence and inherent value are determined by their group affiliations. You might be asking, what's wrong with that? So here are two things to consider. First, you and I are more than the groups of which we are a part. Our fundamental identity and value are not determined by our gender, our generation, our sexual orientation, our race, or our socioeconomic status. It's true, it's definitely true that these groups are part of who we are, but they are not the core of who we are. We are not fundamentally economic or sexual beings, for instance. Our fundamental identity and value come from being individual human beings, which is something that we all have in common. All individuals, regardless of their group affiliations, possess equal dignity, and inherent value. Second, if certain groups of people are victims or victimizers by nature, then liberation of the oppressed and rehabilitation of the oppressors would be theoretically impossible. Think about it. If we attribute different levels of intrinsic worth to people based on their group identities, then people would be locked into being an oppressed or oppressor groups by definition. Ironically, equality between groups on this view of things would be impossible. 
Only a philosophy that ascribes equal dignity, value, and worth to all human beings can rationally believe in the absolute injustice of oppression and the moral imperative to liberate the captive, regardless of the captive's race, gender, age, sexual orientation, or socioeconomic status. We've also been lied to about what is wrong with the world. This same philosophy has given us a false diagnosis, telling us that the fundamental problem with the world is particular groups of people. For example, men, people with money, Caucasians, Jews, Christians, Democrats, Republicans, the police, etc. Of course, there is some truth to this, but only because there is something wrong with everyone. The test results from history and experience are in. And guess what? They tell us that corruption plagues every person, party, and people group on the planet. Just like all people have the same inherent value, all people have the same inherent sickness as well. What is this universal sickness that all humans, regardless of their group affiliations, have? Self-centeredness. Individual, corporate, ideological, and institutional selfishness is what is wrong with the world. I guess it shouldn't surprise us that a reductionistic definition of people leads to a reductionistic assessment of the problem. While it is true that some people are morally worse than others, you know, you think about Hitler and the Nazis versus Mother Teresa and the nuns, it is not true that some people are morally worthless than others. To confuse these two is to dehumanize and demonize whole groups of people without regard to their actual behavior. And as a result, ironically, we become what we claim to despise, bigots, hypocrites, and perpetrators of injustice. The Holocaust, apartheid, and chattel slavery are all examples of what can happen when a nation adopts an ideology that denigrates whole groups of people without any consideration of their character or conduct. Martin Luther King Jr. would be appalled at the prospect. In other words, and please hear me on this, cultural Marxism and racism share the exact same logic. They classify certain groups of people as the problem, as unequal, by definition. As we can see, while all people are created equal, all ideas are not. Certain ideas are false and or morally dangerous, no matter what group espouses them. For example, the idea that mercury is good medicine, or that black people are less valuable than white people, or that white people are less valuable than black people are both false and morally dangerous ideas. Some ideas, like the ones espoused by cultural Marxism, you see, are part of the problem. They systematize selfishness and injustice instead of restraining it. Another issue with cultural Marxism's diagnosis is that it makes the problem with the world permanent. If we replace universal corruption of what was originally an uncorrupt human nature with this oppressed oppressor distinction, we make conflict between groups constant. Said another way, if this distinction between oppressed and oppressor is an original or even a necessarily emerging feature of the world, then it is unsolvable. We would be stuck in an endless battle between the strong and weak groups, a never-ending game of king of the hill, so to speak. All that would change over time is which groups are in power and which groups are leading the violent revolution. You see, only a philosophy that diagnoses the root of the world's problems as an unoriginal, universal sickness can believe that individual and societal healing is possible both in principle and in practice. Finally, we've been lied to about what the solution to the world's problems is. Cultural Marxism's proposed cure is to one, overthrow by whatever means necessary 
the groups of people who have been labeled a priori as the problem, the groups we mentioned earlier, the rich, Caucasians, the police, men, Christians, capitalists, Democrats, those with political power, whatever, and then two, to dispense the appropriated resources of these so-called oppressor groups to establish uniform possession of wealth and material goods among citizens. Said another way, the suggested solution is to forcibly remove from power those who have or are even perceived as having power, and then to equitably redistribute the spoils of war to the formerly oppressed groups. So what's wrong with that? Well, one issue with this proposed solution is that it perpetuates the very problem it is trying to solve, oppression and injustice. Think about this. If the very existence of certain groups of people is considered oppressive, then theoretically it is just to exact retribution on them regardless of whether or not they have actually violated any legal or ethical codes. In other words, by failing to distinguish between perceived and actual oppression, you end up punishing people even if they haven't done anything wrong, which ironically is the very definition of injustice. This is not to say that there are no oppressors, think about Kim Jong-un, systems of oppression, think about sex trafficking, or legal injustices, think about crony capitalism, in the world. The point is that to be an oppressor, you have to do, something, do or participate in something oppressive. So, only a philosophy that distinguishes between perceived and actual acts or systems of oppression can legitimately claim to stand for liberty, justice, and equality. You see, justice punishes the guilty proportionately and without partiality. And justice rewards the innocent proportionately and without partiality as well. That is to say, equal justice is when each person is given their due based on the quality of their character and conduct, regardless of their race, gender, sexual orientation, or socioeconomic status. Another issue with this so-called solution is that it sanctions theft under the guise of justice by claiming that the wealth and material goods of certain groups of people actually belong to other groups of people. In other words, an unsubstantiated accusation of theft is used as a pretense for forcibly taking the resources of others, which is essentially the equivalent of someone lecturing you about how bad stealing is while they are tying you up and robbing your house. Listen, Oprah Winfrey, LeBron James, and Bill Gates didn't steal money from the American people. We freely gave it to them for goods and services rendered. In other words, they acquired their positions and resources fairly. And as that pertains to poverty, the data is pretty clear and pretty surprising. Did you know that the most substantial factor in reducing poverty around the world has not been wealth redistribution or foreign aid? Instead, it has been the ability of the poor to participate in a free market economy and global trade. The amount of people living at starvation level poverty has actually fallen 80% since 1970. Apparently, this is, quote, the greatest anti-poverty achievement in world history. And what caused this positive change? As Arthur Brooks points out, five innovations are to thank for the progress that the world has made in reducing poverty. You ready? Globalization, free trade, property rights, the just rule of law, and entrepreneurship. I would add training and education to the list as well. In short, increasing opportunities for the poor to create wealth, as opposed to endlessly increasing safety net levels of aid, is actually the key to helping people sustainably escape poverty. Listen, I promise you, I am not against government aid. The government certainly has a role to play in helping citizens who are destitute and in need. I myself am currently on disability, so I would qualify for one of the oppressed groups. Here's my feeding tube as proof of my own desperate need for temporary government assistance. You see, the point I'm making is simply this, that the government should be a safety net and last resort for those in need. 
not the primary or permanent institution that cuts our checks, unless, of course, we are unable to care for ourselves. That said, the societal institutions that have proven to be the most effective at helping people take advantage of the educational and economic opportunities in our country are the family, the church, and charities. That is one of the reasons why the government has had such little success in reducing the poverty rate. No government program can replace the importance of a loving home, a supportive spiritual community, or charitable institutions that specialize in leveraging our voluntary contributions to help people escape poverty and lead meaningful lives. By the way, government programs have spent trillions of dollars trying to reduce poverty in America, and all their efforts have led to about a 1% reduction in the poverty rate. So as good as it might sound, moving towards a more fully state-controlled economy, be it socialist or communist, is actually not the way to help people. That said, of course, there is another side to this coin, which is maintaining the integrity of a free market. We also desperately need public policy reform and antitrust law enforcement to rein in the crony capitalism that is undermining the integrity and effectiveness of what has become only a partially free market in our country. Listen, what I mean is this, that due to government favoritism on the right and the left, some citizens and companies have not acquired their wealth and positions fair and square. As Senator Mike Lee said, cronious policies come in many shapes and sizes, from subsidies and loan guarantees to tax loopholes and protective regulation, but they all work the same way. The elite leaders of big government, big business, and big special interests collude to help each other climb to the highest rungs of success and then pull up the ladder behind them. In other words, politicians enable crony capitalism by passing biased regulation that limits or blocks competition and by spending tax dollars with companies that have curried their favor instead of with companies that are in the best interest of the American people. This obviously unfairly rigs certain markets, but the solution to this problem is not to replace a market economy with a Marxist one. That would only expand the problem by totally decimating free production and exchange. The solution is to reform the economy to ensure that it is in fact free for everyone to participate in on the same terms and according to the same rules. And again, for that to happen, we need to outlaw rigging the system. So as you can see, a degree of government regulation is absolutely necessary to ensure that the market and every other uh, cultural system functions ethically, as uh, the recent Social Dilemma documentary about the tech industry illustrated so well. But the rules and the enforcement of those rules must be impartial and apply to everyone, including the government. Here's the million dollar question we need to ask in this video though. Has the Marxist ideology ever led to liberty, justice, and prosperity for all? No. As Bruce Ashford writes, historically, Marxist states have been authoritarian and often totalitarian. Ironically, instead of liberating society, they have suppressed it, stripping citizens of basic human rights and relentlessly opposing society's religious institutions. More ironic still, they have catalyzed mind-boggling economic inequality with Communist Party leaders living in opulence while the working class is driven to destitution. The unrealistic attempt to forcibly bring about a communist utop utopia leads to widespread oppression and violence. Examples include the former Soviet Union, the People's Republic of China, Cuba, and North Korea. Together, over the past century, did you know that over 100 million people have been murdered at the hands of Marxist regimes? In short, cultural Marxism doesn't deliver what it promises. It is a logically incoherent, historically falsifiable, morally dangerous, and existentially bankrupt philosophy. It utilizes deception and injustice in the pursuit of power instead of truth and justice in the pursuit of peace. 
In other words, it adopts the approach of the mobster over that of the magistrate. The American constitutional republic, on the other hand, is rooted in a logically coherent, historically verifiable, morally advantageous, and existentially rich philosophy. It is a philosophy that prizes truth and justice in the pursuit of peace and prosperity for all individuals. It might not be popular to say it, but it is true that America's treasured freedoms, everything from religion to speech to market to press, all emerge from a Christian philosophy, one that one defines all humans as the handcrafted masterpieces of a divine artisan. Two, diagnoses the problem with the world as an unoriginal, universal human self-centeredness that manifests itself in selfish ideas, actions, and systems. And three, identifies the solution to the world's problems as divine intervention, assistance, and guidance, followed by human repentance, trust, and obedience. In short, a philosophy that acknowledges that we can only flourish if we are truly one nation under God and not one nation under Marx, Freud, and Nietzsche. If we millennials don't want America to one day be added to the list of failed Marxist states, then we have to strategically exercise our current influence potential in an effort to restore American society to its founding philosophy. Listen, even if you just consider the Christian worldview a useful myth, and to its founding documents, for example, the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. How do we do this? Well, millennials, quote, make up nearly a quarter of the total U.S. population, 30% of the voting age population, and almost two-fifths of the working age population. This means that we have, or at least positioned to have, significant influence. Who our generation votes for at the local, state, and national level. Where we spend our money. Where we choose to get degrees and send our children to school what we watch, read, and listen to for news and entertainment, and how we pursue our careers all have a significant shaping influence on our nation. In other words, if we were to consciously choose not to use our time, money, talents, and votes for supporting politicians, laws, businesses, schools, entertainment products and platforms, churches, and news outlets that embody the philosophy of cultural Marxism, and instead use our time, money, talents, vote, and votes for supporting people, policies, and institutions that embody America's founding principles, then we could make significant headway in turning our country in a healthier direction. For example, we and our children could avoid attending educational institutions, or at least attending classes, and regularly consuming media that teach any of the following as if they are correct. All truth claims are power grabs. Justice is equality of outcome as opposed to equality of opportunity, often deceptively called social justice. Morality is relative. Free market economies and private property are bad. In other words, state, the state can, should control everything. Christianity is a Western religion of the privileged. As a quick side note here, actually Christianity was birthed in the Middle East. It was freely adopted by blacks in places like ancient Ethiopia and Nubia well before it was freely adopted by whites in Europe. The center of Christianity today is in Africa and Latin America. The average Christian is poor, and Christians are the most persecuted people group on the planet. Resuming with our list, we should destroy the criminal justice system as opposed to reform the criminal justice system. The nuclear family is unimportant to the health and development of children. A certain race is less valuable than another race. Identity is a social construct as opposed to a God-given gift and the Constitution is irrelevant, or that religious freedom should be rolled back. If we hear anything like that, we should change the channel or unenroll. Clearly, we will have to learn the contours of the Marxist philosophy, along with its vocabulary, well, if we're going to be able to detect when it is at play in these various arenas. Listen, we may have been duped in the past. 
but we can still change course. We can still work to form a society where truth, justice, and mercy reign over deception, injustice, and bitterness. That is, we can choose the way of the magistrate over that of the mobster, and we must, or else one day America really could be added to the list of failed Marxists. The video provided some clarity on what is happening in our culture right now. Please feel free to share this with your children and grandchildren. I will be releasing a two-part video soon entitled Justice, Race, and Other Non-Controversial Topics as a follow-up to this video. So if you have lingering questions on a Christian approach to that discussion in particular, check my YouTube channel, which is Jonathan Darville, in the coming weeks. God bless all of you, and thank you again for having me this morning. Well, Jonathan, that was profound. I mean, every time I listen to that, it makes me think. And again, let me encourage you, Church at the Red Door. Uh, I know that was like a fire hose, 20-minute fire hose of uh, just some very powerful insight. And again, and I want to I just say a couple things here real quick. You say, well, Jeff, that, is that really, we're here for Bible teaching. We're here to truly try to understand the Bible. Let me just tell you, Jonathan was laying a foundation, a very profound foundation, for an understanding of human depravity. For our understanding that we are the problem. Humanity's the problem. And our tendencies to always point the finger, pass the buck. Uh, that's the human tendency. It was the very first tendency in the garden. They fell, they made the mistake, and they immediately sought cover. And so we have to address some of these cultural philosophies that raise themselves up against the knowledge of God, meaning Jesus and what he said about reality. I want to close this morning, uh, before I turn it over to Pastor Paul for communion, I want to close with one application to what Jonathan said. Look, the, one, the, the real path that Satan uses uh, to bring, uh, bring the church down, or at least make it, he's never going to be able to bring it down. Jesus has already conquered it on the throne, and he rules over all authority. But to marginalize the church, Satan always, the strategies always are the same. If you go to Galatians 5 and you can see the manifestation of the flesh, look at it, divisions and strife and factions. I mean, as he describes it, it just sounds like America today. It just sounds like how divided we are. Satan is always trying to divide, 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 divide. Uh, no house, Jesus said, that's divided can stand. We know that. This happened very early in the church's origins. I was talking to Jonathan again uh, just recently. I said, Jonathan, I'm going to close this little segment that we have this morning with Romans chapter 11. And the reason is, is because very on, early on in the church's own development, there were, Satan had already entered in, and Paul is having to defend against this, the church who was being persecuted by many of the religious Jews who had rejected Jesus as the Messiah. That very church was now turning and creating good guy, bad guy scenarios and they were very angry. Why? Because they were being put in jail. They were being persecuted in some very substantive ways by some of, some of those in the Jewish community, some of the Jewish religious leaders. And they began to have some real animosity. And Paul, strangely enough, comes in to defend his own tribe. Not, now, he, you got to understand, he's part of the church now. He's part of the one new man, Jew and Gentile, that were following Jesus. But he had to come in and defend the Jewish people at large against the accusations that were already being made 
by the church towards them. And listen to what he says. Now, I've taught on this before. And if some of you may remember, my title of this message was The Great Shut Up. Because, and and I'm going to explain why that is. Now, he was trying to talk to the church. He goes, I realize that it looks, and as we look out on the landscape of America, there is a tendency to say, these are our enemies. But it depends on where you fall. Maybe if you're uh, black, you may say these are our enemies. Or maybe if you're white, these are our enemies. It could be race-related. Socioeconomically, it could be related. These are our enemies. Other complete ethnic groups, uh, the Hispanics are our enemies, or the or whoever. And or the religious groups are our enemies. It just goes on and on. We can divide and divide and divide and divide, and then we become very tribal in the way we think about the world. I've talked about that fairly extensively. But listen to what Paul says, and I'll close before I turn it over to Paul, um, uh, Pastor Paul. From the standpoint of the gospel, they, these Jews who have rejected Jesus, are enemies for your sake. Interestingly, for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Now catch this. This has to be, this has to denote, this is the marking characteristic, the atmosphere, if you will, of someone who's going to be effective at being the pillar and the support of the truth. Someone who recognizes this simple fact. For just as you were disobedient to God, it was us, it was me, it was you. We're the problem. But have now been shown mercy because of their disobedience. So these also now, these Jews who've rejected Jesus, have been disobedient in order that because of the mercy shown to you, they may now be shown mercy. Why? For God has shut up all in disobedience that he might show mercy to all. Look, the reality is, is that any cultural philosophy, as Jonathan so eloquently articulated, any cultural philosophy that tries to invade the foundational truth that all humanity is fallen is a flawed philosophy that will bring people into captivity and not lead to the flourishing of life. Although it sounds so enticing to us, we want to hear that we're the good guys and they're the bad guys. We want to set up these these groups. And let me tell you something, that's only going to lead to division. So Super Tuesday's coming. Uh, I would encourage you, vote. Be part of the process. Uh, look at candidates and, and try and look. You may feel like, well, I don't feel like I can find anybody that really aligns with me. Well, nobody's going to align with you perfectly. But we are a democracy, so be involved. And uh, I would encourage you to do so. So I hope this morning has been impactful. I hope it's maybe given you some insight. And as Jonathan said, I hope this is something you pass on possibly to your kids or grandkids or friends uh, and allow them to have maybe a different perspective on how how I think the church and in some ways uh, our culture and millennials and and us as well have been duped by some of these speculations and philosophies. So now I turn it over to Pastor Paul. Would you please lead us out with communion on this glorious uh, beginning of November? Thanks so much, Church of the Red Door. I certainly miss you. Can't wait to see some of you when, when you get back.